being introduced by Dina Candler. <laughs> no one has a friend like Dina. <laughs> Dina was a chaplain at Jamestown College for a number of years when I was there. One day, she and a friend... They snuck into my study, my office. They had a bunch of plastic. Am, am I too loud? I seem like I'm loud. Um, they had a bunch of plastic spiders, gross things. Um, and they put them everywhere. They put them in books. They put them in my uh, file cabinets. They put them in my desk. And so every time I would open a book, my Bible, anything, um, these things would fall out. And I thought I had pretty much purged my, my life of these because they bring back a, kind of unsavory memories of some things. Um, but I now am, after 30 or 40 years, cleaning out all the files that I've had over the years. <laughs> yeah, and you got it. I, I'm opening stuff from Jamestown and outfall <laughs> Dina. Um, you, the gift that just keeps on giving. You've, you're unforgettable. I love you most of the time. <laughs> oh, it's great to be back with you all. I have to tell you, this is uh, such a good place for my spiritual health. Um, I learn things here uh, that I don't learn in other parts of ministry. Humility. <laughs> Humiliation. Being with so many friends, and, and David Warner, um, <laughs> pray for the, your enemies, those who hate you. It's, it's important. Mail call. Boy, that word just brings fear to my heart. <laughs> Count it all joy, my brothers. <laughs> when they run your name through the grill. Great. I uh, want to talk with you this week about the church. I've never really been interested in this subject. Pastors usually are. I've been much more interested in other subjects. But at this stage in my life, uh, I'm thinking much more about the church than I am about many other aspects of theology. My guess is that you're, many of you are doing the same. And it's completely predictable and understandable because we serve the church. And the church that we serve, not just the PCUSA, but the entire church landscape is in tremendous change. We know that. But I think that uh, it's different different, experiencing change in the midst of this, this time warp than it will be perhaps sometime in the future if we live that long and look back and see exactly how quickly and how significantly the church was in fact changing, say, between in the early part of the, of the 2000s. And we're in the midst of that. This is the time uh, that we have been called to serve. It's not an easy time. I would say that um, we're becoming aware of the liminal existence of the church. Liminal is a fashionable word today, but it's a good word for the purpose that I want to use it. Because liminal means... Um, a border area. It's an in-between zone. And actually, in ecological systems and in uh, people groups, liminal areas are very creative times because you're living with a confluence of more than one influence. For many of us, um, 
I'll be 70 this year. I grew up, born into a world in which the church uh, was a privileged institution in our society. In Colorado Springs, there were pastors on the city council. There were pastors on the school board. Pastors prayed at many functions in the city. Those kinds of things are extremely foreign in our world today. If you're familiar with hockey, you're familiar with a very common defense tactic when the opposition is bringing the puck down the ice, when the forwards are bringing it down. Uh, the defense players, there's always two one, always do two things to try to ensure that the offense doesn't get a clean shot at the goal. And that is, they start to move them off to the side. This is just always uh, the common thing that happens to every time you get the puck. You may get it in the center ice, but those defense players are going to be pushing you to the side. Inevitably. And they're very effective at it. It's, it's, it's easy to do. And of course, once you're onto the side, you do not get the kind of a shot that you would like to get. I think the church is like that today. We have been in the center of ice, and we've had wonderful shots at the goal, so to speak. But the culture and all kinds of things are moving us to this sidelines, to the liminal area. And although we may regret that, and there are regrettable things about it, I am convinced that historically, that liminal zone is where we have played the Christian game, so to speak. It's not a game, of course. But it's where we have, where we have served the gospel well. I think actually better than when we have been in a privileged position. Now that's not to say that it's easy. It isn't easy. For those of us who have lived in a privileged era, we're now being called to bear witness in ways that are hard for us. When I first went to East Germany in 1965 and then in 1970 and throughout the 70s and 80s until the fall of the wall with Berlin Fellowship, Berlin Fellowship was an organization that played a big role here in Southern, not, this isn't Southern California, but for those of you in Southern California, the um, Senate of Southern California was part of the in Hollywood Press, the founding of this group that went to East Germany, Communist East Germany, uh, at least once a year to visit churches, population exchanges, so to speak. It was, it was really a, 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 a resistance by the form of creation. When our governments, the Cold War was dividing off the East and the West, Berlin Fellowship said, the church is one, and we are not going to allow our church to be divided by this ideological boundary between communism and capitalism. It was a profound uh, protest, a creative protest, that we are going to show solidarity with our brothers and sisters in the East was really an essential part of my life, introduced me, it introduced me to a healthy ecclesiology, and to this day, it continues to be a meaningful thing for me. When I went to East Germany, I, I encountered a term called inner migration. And I didn't know what that meant. People talked about inner migration. And as I got to know them a little bit, I, I would say, what, what is inner migration? And their explanation made perfect sense. It went like this, simple. We live in a society in which we are being coerced to do a number of things that we don't like to do. And our compliance with those things determines whether we Succeed or fail in the society. Compliance. And so we as Christians are forced and tempted to make an inner migration. Okay, we say. We'll do what you want. Our kids will join the 
Communist Youth Organization uh, will say the pledges, will march in the quota parades, and will do all of these things, this, these propaganda ploys that, that uh, bolstered up uh, the socialist system. But we'll make this intermigration. We'll pray to ourselves, we'll be free to ourselves. I was surprised um, that the communists, I, this was a big surprise to me, didn't care if you were a Christian. You could actually be a Communist Party member and be a Christian. That really surprised me. What they cared was, if you remember the church, it couldn't be that. So I thought and thought about this, and I thought, well, that's, those communists are pretty smart, actually. They're teaching me some ecclesiology here because they know that if they can separate you from a living fellowship and just get you to intermigrate, so that religion just becomes an idea, an internal concept, they've got gotcha. you. They knew something about the church that I didn't really at least articulate. And I actually think that um, that intermigration is somewhat viable for me. I think that's happening to me. That's why I'm thinking a lot about the church. Uh, perhaps this is truer in academe than in the uh, ecclesia where you all live, but it may not be truer. Um, there's a lot of pressure in academe to make this intermigration. Comply with um, the accreditation expectations. Uh, comply with the cultural expectations. And we live today uh, in a divided house, at least I do, and I think probably many of you do too. Uh, I've listened to your stories about staying in the PCUSA or leaving the PCUSA, but of course it's a lot bigger than that. And there's this dance, it's, it's a tension, isn't it, between compliance and yet uh, conviction. And I think this is really a good time for us. Not easy, but good. Because we in the church are no longer able to simply go with the flow, we are being required by our social context in all kinds of ways to decide where we stand. And that is never a bad thing. It's been a hard year for me personally in many ways. I demitted my ministry in the PCUSA after 40-some years. And like all of you, this meant a lot to me. Not the demittance, but the ministry did. But the, the inner freedom that I have received from that has been a good thing for me. It hasn't been a bad thing. It's been a hard thing, but it's been a very good thing. And God has been very present with me, and I am grateful to be here today because I know that I'm speaking with people who know exactly what I'm talking about in this intermigration, this, this tension between compliance and remaining a whole person of conviction and bearing witness to Christ. And I really know one thing, and this is one of the reasons why I love this group, we need each other in a profound way. I had always hoped, I had been involved in the, the PC, uh, the, um, lots of the renewal organizations, the coalition and PFR and so forth, and those were very meaningful to me. And I always hoped, uh, two or three, three or four years ago when I was here, I don't remember when it was, but Mateen and I, we took this kind of straw poll about, folks with the PCUSA. I remember Henry Green, of blessed memory, was here, and we had a long talk. And I'd always hoped that when the dam broke, we would all uh, stay together. And in retrospect, I realized that's, that's, that's not going to happen. That's impossible. And it hasn't happened. 
we've all been fragmented and each person has to make this choice for him or herself. And yet we still need one another. We may have to make that choice alone, but we still profoundly need the fellowship. Prayers, laughter, conversation, listening, and also those heart questions that come from friends and only from friends. And perhaps above all, acceptance even when we disagree. Because that does too happen. So, I am really grateful to be back here today and to talk with you about what I want to talk about. This is a, a bit of a long and it's a little bit of a somber introduction. It, things will pick up here in a moment. Uh, <laughs> um, to just kind of put my cards on the table and tell you why I'm interested in the church. And this is why. Uh, what is the church today? Where is the ch church today? How can we be the church today? What does it mean to be the church today? These questions are just so vital in my thinking. One of the things that I do and I find helpful when I deal with a question like this is not just to go to theology, but to go to history. The difference is this, theology tells me what is true, but history shows me people who have actually done it. And there are some things in life that I won't do unless I have seen it modeled. I can know it's the right thing to do. You can tell me you should forgive your enemies. Now, I know that's right, but until I see somebody do that, I probably am not going to do that. And that's why I like history. And so I have been searching for a time in history in which the church has something to teach us in our day. And in order to do that, we have to find an era of history in which the church seems to, in some sense, mirror and reflect the world in which we live. And I think that one of the times that I have found is in the very early church the earliest church, prior to the time in which it became recognized and reputable after the Edict of Milan in the 4th century with Constantine. When it was still in a liminal experience, that is to say, it was not accepted by the society and yet it was present in the society and seeking for its acceptance. And that early period is where that's true. And we have a great deal in common with that period. Because we too, as I've said, are in this liminal zone. But with this difference. When you read the earliest Christians, it's very clear that they see themselves on the sidelines, the outskirts, this liminal region but it's very clear that they see themselves moving into the center. There's just this unstoppable conviction and enthusiasm that God is going to change the society. And that happens. You and I are also in a liminal zone, but we have, in my mind, the opposite conviction. We are being moved from the center further to the far country. Be that as it may, that liminal period to me is the key, and that's why I want to do today, or this week. Today I want to talk about um, a new book that I'm going to write, I want to write at least, it's about this, it's basically a, 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 an outline of my thesis, and then tomorrow and Thursday and Friday I want to talk about four areas. I want to talk about uh, Christology, I want to talk about the church, I want to talk about discipleship, and I want to talk about mission. But today I want to talk about the first 
Christian generation. From the death of Christ in AD 30 to the death of Ignatius of Antioch in 105. That's a period of 75 years. I'm calling it a single generation. It's, granted, it's a long generation. Uh, but people did live that long. Caesar Augustus lived exactly that number of years. Philo lived exactly that number of years. So it's, it's a, with some stretch of an imagination, a single lifetime. And in that lifetime, the church experiences greater change than it has ever experienced before and achieves greater definition than it has ever achieved. In fact, it achieves the definition, the contours, the shape that we know it today. Now, the interesting thing to me about this is that historians don't like this period of, say, um, 80 to 150. And the reason they don't like it is because they seem to think that the church uh, regresses during this time. It goes into a slump. There are no great Christian thinkers. And so most theologians kind of pass over this area, this era of the church with a, a degree of kind of intellectual um, they call it modesty, but, but actually it's embarrassment. <laughs> Ignatius, the Didache, Diagnetus, Polycarp, they, they seem to us to be rather embarrassing characters. We want to get over to the Justins, to the Irenaeuses, the Clements of Alexandria, and the Tertullians, and especially the big... Guys like Origen and Hippolytus. Those are the real muscular, intellectually respectable characters. And so we make a long jump over this first 75-year period. And I don't want to make that jump because it's in that period that the church as we know it comes into existence. And that is so significant. I'm going to just talk in the first um, hour now about what the changes were, and then after the break, before we take the picture, <laughs> I'm going to talk about not what the changes were, but what the continuities were. Now, in order to talk about the changes, we're going to just kind of do a little thought experiment here. Um, I'm always fascinated by time travel. Uh, interesting enough, I, I would love to form a time machine, not because I'm interested in machines, but because I'm interested in getting to other eras. I never want to go to the future. I don't know what that means. Um, but I have no interest in going to the future. I would always want to go to the past. And so my time travel will be the past. And let's suppose that we could kind of divide the group down the middle. And we said to this group over here, all right, uh, we have a time machine planned that's going to send you back to the Jesus movement. And we're going to say to this group over here, we've got another time machine kind of calibrated for 75 years later. And we're going to send you back to Antioch, where Ignatius is a bishop. So I'm going to speak to you all first, and then you'll come second. Now, you have the tougher call. Because um, how are you going to recognize the church? Now, you say to yourself, well, that'll be easy. I'll just see Jesus. Well, there are two million people living in Palestine. And they all look like Jesus, or Jesus looks like them. <laughs> so we're going to have to get a little bit more specific here. The only things that you know, or the only one thing that you know is, in order to find the Jesus, Jesus and the Jesus movement, is the profile given of Christianity in the Gospels. You have nothing more to go on. And so, what do the Gospels, what kind of a shape and profile do the Gospels give us of the Jesus movement? 
Well, you'll know what these are. You can maybe add some of your own to them. First of all, it's a, it's a movement. It's not an organized program. It doesn't have any constituent documents. You'll not be able to find any buildings associated with it. It's an organized movement. And more than that, it's a very small movement. Uh, it doesn't have a name, so you can't hold up a placard, you know, I'm looking for Christians. Uh, it might be called the way, according to Luke, the earliest name is the way, but we don't know how soon that came to be called the way and how broadly it was received. This way is very rural. You will not find it in Jerusalem. Now, it's true that Jesus goes to Jerusalem once a year for Passover, but all the Gospels say that he does not frequent Jerusalem. He does not uh, identify his mission with Jerusalem. Now, we know that Galilee has two big cities. One of them is Tiberias on the coast, still named Tiberias today. The other one is Sepphoris, S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S, doesn't exist anymore. But here's the interesting thing. These were really dynamic cities. They were Hellenistic cities. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered mosaic floors with beautiful, beautiful pictures in them. The one in Sepphoris has a woman picture that they call her the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Just a beautifully crafted, enormous mosaic floor. High-caliber artisans were at work there. This was a showcase for Herod the Great. Now, the interesting thing is this. Sepphoris is two miles from Nazareth. Now, two miles in Jesus' day was nothing. These people put those sandals on their feet, and they walked 20 miles a day. That was nothing for them. We never hear Jesus going to Sepphoris. It's not mentioned in one New Testament text. Tiberius was five miles from Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is where Jesus went to college. It's his elected home where he chooses his disciples. He could have gone down to Tiberius for breakfast. Not once in any of the Gospels does Jesus or a disciple go to Tiberius. The early Christian movement is wholly rural. There are other signals of it as well. The earliest Christian movement was not just rural, it was consciously Jewish. Uh, if you're going to look for Jesus, don't look on the east side, where, which is Gentile. Don't even look on the southwest side, which is Jewish and Gentile. The entire Gospels have Jesus itinerating and teaching on that northwest quadrant. Uh, if you're looking at the face of a clock, it'll be between 9 o'clock and 1 o'clock. That's Saida's at 1 o'clock. That's where he was. That's where you'll find him. Nowhere else. How about language? We know that the, in the Galilee, Greek was spoken a lot. And the Jews did speak Greek, but it wasn't their primary language. So you're probably not going to hear Jesus speaking Greek. He'll speak either Aramaic, but that's not always true. In all synagogues and in religious conversations, it's going to be Hebrew, and those are two different languages. So you're going to have to be able to communicate in those languages. Keep your ears peeled for Aramaic, and specifically Aramaic in public and everyday affairs, in the homes, in the city gates, Hebrew in religious contexts, synagogues, yeshivas, Torah readings, theological conversations. Uh, don't think about the church. It doesn't exist yet. Christians are meeting in synagogues, and you won't be able to tell the difference because there is no difference yet at this point. Synagogues, of course, meet on Saturday, so don't go on Sunday. You're a day late. You'll have to wait another week. You won't be able to find people, go Jesus by people carrying Bibles. Um, the Bible doesn't yet exist. New Testament hasn't been written. The Old Testament hasn't been written. It doesn't, can't be an old without a new, so that term doesn't relate. 
It's just a series of scrolls, actually, and scrolls are hard to carry. They're about the size of a roll of tar paper. They weigh enough for an ox cart to carry them, so they're, they're very immobile. Um, it will not be until the Christian world kind of either invents or adopts the codex uh, that we'll see actually the book form instead of the scroll form develop, but no book form in the Old Testament. So there you have it. The Jesus movement doesn't look any different than any other rabbi traveling around, and it doesn't look any different than a cynic philosopher traveling around. It's not going to be easy to differentiate. It consists of an itinerant preacher leading a small movement. It has no name. Yes, there's 12 men, but there are also a number of other men and women who are following Jesus. It's in rural Palestine, northwest quadrant of the Sea of Galilee, ethnically Jewish, speaking Aramaic and public Hebrew in discussions of scripture, meeting in synagogues, reading from scrolls. It's not going to be easy to find the Jesus movement, and you could even perhaps be in the presence of that movement and not know it. So you guys have a tough assignment. Good luck. <laughs> now at the same time, we're, because you can differentiate on the time machine, we're going to say to the group here on the right, all right, you're going 75 years later to Antioch. Because there is a bishop there by the name of Ignatius, and he writes seven letters to the churches, the same area that the apostle or that the uh, apocalypse are written, the seven letters of the book of Revelation. And he identifies the church in all kinds of important descriptors. A mere 75 years later. And I don't need to give this group any instructions whatsoever. Because virtually every description and experience that you have of the church, you'll recognize in Antioch in 105. The movement founded by Jesus in rural Galilee, for you folks, is now thoroughly urban. It's no longer isolated to Palestine, but it's pulsating throughout the Roman Empire on that most important of all corridors, that Antioch-Rome axis that goes through Turkey, that goes through Greece, and goes to the Via Ostia to Rome. It's the single most important corridor. Already the church is there. Antioch is the first leg of it. The church now is largely Gentile and increasingly non-Jewish. It has abandoned Hebrew and Aramaic forever. It's entirely writing preaching, evangelizing in Greek. This is such an interesting point. We know that there were documents, Christian documents, written in Hebrew. I've written a book on one called the Hebrew Gospel. It was there. I can give us 90 times when the Hebrew Gospel is actually mentioned by 26 different church fathers. It did exist. It's not a figment of my imagination or anyone else's but it no longer is extant. We don't have a single Christian Hebrew text, but we have thousands, literally, Greek texts. And those texts will then become Latin, they will become Syriac, but they will never go back to Hebrew. Christians are no longer meeting in synagogues, they're meeting in churches, ecclesia. The churches are not superintended by apostles, they're superintended by bishops. 
and by deacons. Worship is not on Saturday, it's on Sunday. Sacred scripture is no longer limited to the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the writings and the prophets, but it's now augmented by a new Christian group of scriptures. We know that by Ignatius' day there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are Acts. There are uh, probably 12 to 13 letters of Paul and 1 Peter and the Apocalypse. Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, um, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st John will be included, but some of those, there'll be six or seven New Testament uh, books that will not be perhaps decided at this point, but 20 of the 27 books will be more or less recognized as scripture. And these scriptures, this is really one of the most important points, are no longer written in a clumsy scroll. A scroll, if you're going to get to the beginning or the middle or the end, you have to, you have to go through the entire text. It's, it's so laborious. They're going to be written in a codex. A codex was the most revolutionary information technology to hit the world. And that is, you can take a bunch of sheets of paper, and you can bind them on one side, and you can write on both sides. A scroll can only be written on one side. And I can open this to any place instantly and get twice as much text, ten times more accessible in a much smaller space. Christians never wrote in scrolls. They loved codices. A Jewish synagogue to this day will not read from a codex. It has to be a scroll. We have no early manuscripts that are Christian scrolls. They're, they're codices. We know that Luther um, seizes upon this printing press and that has a huge influence on the success of the Reformation. Christianity seizes upon this radical new invention called the Codex. And that too makes the Christian faith very portable. All of this happens in one generation. You people going to Antioch do not need me to tell you a thing about the church. All I'm going to say is look for something that looks pretty much like where you go every Sunday morning and you'll find it. And you folks are really going to have, you're still looking. <laughs> One generation, 75 years. It's this generation that historians are jumping over in this long jump saying it's a regression, it's an embarrassment. Here's my, my basic reason I think that they jump over it so much. There was no great apostle like Paul. Now here's something very interesting. That's true, there wasn't. And there will never be again. Where in Christian history do we find a missionary champion like Paul who covered as much territory as systematically founding as many churches and defining the church, the Christian faith as much as Paul? Answer, never again. Now, there were, of course, traveling missionaries. Apostle, uh, Apollos was one. We know him from the New Testament. Peter, read 1 Peter. Peter claims he's been in Turkey. Now, we have no knowledge of that, but Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia, he talks about. So he must have been there. We know that the Apostle John is in the churches of uh, the Revelation in western Turkey. So there were missionaries, but they did not have the program that was as ambitious, nor it seems to be as successful as Paul's. The Apostle Paul is really an anomaly in Christian history. And 
we do not want or certainly need to denigrate that ministry at all. But we would certainly want to say that the church in that first 75 years does not have a Paul. Well, once Paul dies in 60, it doesn't have a Paul. And yet, all of these changes that constitute the church as we know it today and outfit it to be the organization that has survived 2,000 years have happened, and they have happened by this anonymous Christian community or certainly sets of Christian communities. These were creative people. This was a formative season in the church. This is a season that can speak to us today. Now, we need to just parse this out for a minute. The ancient world had hundreds of associations, cults, philosophies, societies, schools, and mystery religion. It was a society-dominated era. There were philosophical schools named after Heraclitus, after the various scientists of Miletus, after Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. There were mystery religions named from Magna Mater, the early sex cults. We can still find their figurines where this voluptuous uh, woman and this very erotic man with an erection, Priapus, they're all over the place. They're three, four, five thousand years old. The oldest uh, cults that we know are sex cults. And we can understand why. Procreation and new birth. Are, wow, that that's, must be divine. There was the cults of death cults of Osiris and Iris. There were healing cults. There were grain cults. There were bull-slaying cults. There were hosts of associations that we would recognize as trade organizations, professional societies. The church was one among several hundred major institutions that had cults, associations, and societies. And here's the interesting thing. Not one of these groups that I've named, not one of these groups that existed, these groups, associations, organizations, or societies, permeated the ancient world as diversely and thoroughly as did the Christian movement. Judaism. One of the most successful of the cults was Judaism. It showed the ability to exist in a greater variety of cultures and more hostile cultures than any other cult. It was widely known and actually respected because of that. But Judaism never embraced those societies. It survived them. It created an alternative community within them. These aforementioned groups were formed in particularity and they could never escape their particularity. Christianity, it's true. Jesus' movement was also formed in particular. Jesus is a a Jew of rural Galilee, and it's an itinerant movement, and it begins that way. But it's not determined by that. It succeeded in building a bridge, actually many bridges to the ancient world. And those bridges changed the ancient society. The change wasn't as fast as a lot of people imagine. We kind of have this uh, idea today that that, uh, the Christian church just took off like wildfire. It didn't. If you want to use a fire image, it probably smoldered for a long time. In 150 AD, 100 years after Paul's death, or mission work, the church is still not very often mentioned in Greco-Roman sources, and when it is mentioned, the information that we have of it seems to be more hearsay than actually valid and first-hand information. But within two centuries, this liminal organization will have shifted over into the center, oftentimes under the radar of society, 
was a very infiltrating and subversive, not high profile. And it will become the leading institution of the day. Now the thing that really interests me about this, and I'm going to close with this, is how infrequently scholars note the significance of these changes. Everything that I've said, I've gone through the kind of the 12-step program here of all these points. It's, it's become the from the synagogue to the church and from Jew to Gentile and from rural to, to urban and from Palestinian to Roman, on and on and on. And we can go through this. There's 12 points. These are absolutely significant. These are not new. I'm not, what I'm saying is not novel. You could, I've read almost 20 books this past year on, on the early church. These things are mentioned if not all 12 of them, uh, by most of the authors that I read. What they don't seem to recognize is the significance of these. I mean, you all are preachers, and we all are teachers, and we know the difference between saying the truth, something that's really important, and people kind of nodding and, and maybe halfway grasping it, and somebody going, oh, aha. Wow, I've just never seen that before. It's the significance of these changes that I think are so important for us. Here's what Tubigan's Martin Hengel said. The paradox, the irony. What is a paradox? What is irony? An irony, a paradox, is what you would not expect our best prediction, given the various facts, would be X. But a paradox is, oh, nope, it's going to actually be A. Ooh. The paradox of a crucified Messiah, pretender, being proclaimed as the Savior of the world. Now that's a paradox. Somebody crucified on the eastern rim of the Roman Empire as a um, public nuisance, being proclaimed as the Savior of the world, that's a hard sell, is paralleled only by the paradox that a rural Galilean marginal sect, you couldn't put it down any more than that, rural Galilean, can anything good come from Galilee? Marginal, that's, that's, that's liminal, sect, Ugh, sect. Not respectable. <laughs> Became within two generations, I say one, the drivetrain of a new missionary religion within the great cities of the Roman Empire. Boy, that's important. This community was irrepressible. I'm going to talk about that after the break. And I'm going to close with. Ramsey McMullen. Ramsey McMullen is a sociological historian of religion. He's not a Christian, but he's fascinated by Christianity. He teaches at Yale. <clears throat> Listen to this. I quote, The emergence of Christianity from the tangled mess of older religious beliefs eventually to a position of unchallenged superiority is surely the most important single phenomenon that can be discovered in the closing centuries of the ancient world. Now, Yale historians, sociological historians, don't like to overstate things. <laughs> it's hard on your reputation when somebody says, you're an ass, you said things way too strong. Qualify it, qualify it. He says the single most important uh, phenomenon that can be discovered in the closing centuries of the ancient world in its impact on the way of life was to be lived thereafter in the West. What happened to Christianity in that first generation outmatches even the decline of the Roman Empire itself. Now, if you were to canvass your uh, congregations and say, I know you don't know a lot about the ancient world, ancient world, but what was the single most important thing that happened in the ancient world? They probably would say, well, the fall of the Roman Empire. And that would be a very good answer. When I go to the 
Turkey and Israelite tell everybody uh, that this society has never recovered from the fall of the Roman Empire. The standard of living today is less in most of these places than it was in Rome. That's a, that's a truism. McMullen says, wrong. That was the second most important thing. The first was a sleeper. It was this sect, marginal, Galilean, rural, that had within it this atomic force of reproduction, of infinite adaptability. And yet, unmistakable continuity with Christ. I've talked about the adaptability in the last hour. After our break, I want to talk about the continuity. Because the continuity was more important even than this explosive adaptability. It's 10.30. Are we... uh, Have a word of prayer? Okay. Uh, We're going to close the prayer, and we'll have instructions, and then I've got a shorter time after the next one. Uh, We'll have lots of conversation prior to the famous photo. Okay. Gracious Lord, we have always known that we owe our lives as Christians to those unnamed faithful people that are no longer remembered, have long been forgotten, and yet whose faithfulness was critical to our coming to faith. And now we learn about this generation that's overlooked and looked over. And yet their faithfulness brings the church to the form and the maturity that we know it today. We pray that we may learn from them, that we may learn with them, that their experience may be an encouragement to us and that their history may be a mirror of our own so that we may love you and serve you to the glory of the gospel in Christ's name. Amen.